Today's podcast is brought to you by Blue Canary. The bird has landed on beautiful Bainbridge Island, conveniently located at 499 Madison Avenue. ASE Master Technician Clint Ramsey brings over 15 years of experience, award-winning diagnostic skill, and a desire to reinvent the automotive repair experience. Schedule an appointment online at bluecanary.biz or call them today at 206 206- 451-4220. This segment of the Bystander Podcast is brought to you by Eagle Harbor Insurance. We don't sell insurance, we help people buy it. This has always been their motto and continues. They understand every family has different insurance needs, be it coverage or premiums. No two cases are the same, and they will always do their best to guide you into the proper coverage to fit your budget. They are here to help anytime. Give them a call at 206-842-7410 or contact them online at eagleharborinsurance.com. GreatNorthernElectric.com Serving our Bainbridge and Kitsap neighbors with solutions for anything electrical in your home. 206-842-3620. I got something for your mind, body, and soul. I got something for your mind, body, and soul. your host with the most, Tiny Tim. Hey, what's cracking, Podcastville? You found the Bystander Podcast. Today I got a little special audio from Corey Booker. I was lucky enough to go to a fundraiser, get off our little island and go into the big city and up over on Capitol Hill to a place called Fred Wildlife Refuge. Um... I'd like to thank Eduardo Silva and uh, Sabrina Singh, the National Press Secretary for Cory Booker. And uh, shout out to Casey Martin, KUOW reporter and PR rep, who helped me out navigate this situation. I'm always a little bit frazzled when I get out of the comfort of Studio 15 here and do field mic work. Uh, Usually... There's no longer 100 microphones in front of somebody, and you plug into an auxiliary box. And that wasn't working for this, so um, we got some audio off my telephone, of all things. Thank you, iPhone. Um, I was lucky enough to stand by Cory Booker for about 90 minutes and listen to him talk. I found him to be very reasonable, very exciting, uplifting guy, has... um, 
great vernacular, and really capt- captivates the audience and tells a good story. Hey, but before we get to the Cory Booker audio, we got to pay some bills. So support for today's podcast comes from Manscaped, who is the best in men's below-the-belt grooming. Manscaped offers precision-engineered tools for your family jewels. Get 20% off and free shipping with code TINY. That's 20% off plus free shipping when you check out with the code TINY. With no further ado, here's Cory Booker. this circle of friends and supporters where somehow it slipped out a little bit even beyond my family and friends and I'm getting you know Twitter messages of support and I think that as I was trying to recover looking for anything on TV that would make me laugh um, I somehow ended up on Brooklyn Nine-Nine I don't know all right from Brooklyn Nine-Nine thank you very much uh, uh, binge watched it uh, uh, I, 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 uh, I just started having this overwhelming feeling, still the body not recovered, of just feeling how blessed I am. And, and I want to just talk to you from there tonight. I, I really do. And I'd like for this to be, I'm going to uh, share with you more unusual stuff speeches you'll hear, because I just want to talk about what I think underlies all the big things done, which is our values, our virtues, our connections to one another, and why I think this is a moral moment in America. I, I, I have, I'm not exaggerating, I have love for my friends. Some of my closest friends have been running for president with me. I mean, uh, you know, from Andrew Yang to Kirsten Gillibrand to Kamala, 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 Mrs. Kamala. Um, um, these are people that I know, to Bernie, who I've had some of my funniest exchanges with. Uh, He's just, uh, uh, a, there is, amongst his rough exterior, there is a sweetness at his core that is beautiful. With Elizabeth, who she and I have championed together, causes and legislation. 
I, this is a respect I have for the people on the, on the stage. This is why you will not see me like throwing jabs and punches. Um, but, you know, I'm not running because I simply think I have better policy positions than them. Hell, uh, when I'm your president, I will steal liberally from anybody who has got good ideas. There you go, Corey. I'm running for president for reasons I want to talk to you about that have to do with our heart and our spirit and our core and what has helped this nation, this improbable nation, that has done things that have made humanity step back and not just watch in awe, but inspire humanity to higher heights. And, and so I want to just do this now. I want to speak for a little bit from the heart, then I want to uh, uh, invite the host committee, because what you guys did, the host committee for this, I was joking backstage that this is like, it sold out in 36 hours. This, is, this reminds me of my sophomore year in high school when I was trying to get Lionel Richie tickets. <laughs> and, and I was like, 36 hours? I was going crazy back there. That's somewhere between Bruce 1985 and, and Billy Joel 2019. Somewhere, somewhere between there is me. <laughs> So I want, to, I want to ask the host community to come up here and take pictures. Then my, my team, I love the press. You are not the freaking enemy of the people. You are essential. <laughs> um, if it wasn't inappropriate, these days I feel like hugging a journalist. Um, and we take, it, we take it for granted here in America. There are, from Turkey to Russia, journalists are being arrested, jailed, killed. And I, I want to give your local media like four minutes of a gaggle, literally my staff will time them. And then I will literally, even though I am still not 100% back on my feet, I just want to stay on the stage where as many people want to come up here and get a selfie because I'm telling you, I'm telling, you guys think this is magnanimity? No. This is all about the unofficial contest within this presidential contest, is that the six senators that are running are trying to be the number one senator in the United States Senate for the most selfies ever taken. And, and it's a fierce competition. I mean, Bernie, I'm a Jersey guy, but Bernie's from Brooklyn, for crying out loud. You would not be before it. So I, I wanted to sit around and, and shake hands with as many people. Does that sound like a good game plan for you? All right, so. Unusual stump speech. Uh, um, look, I just did my, this, this, so I'm literally, I'm not exaggerating, not out of bed, four days or bathroom floor, come here. I, I get, get up this morning and we, we had to cancel events, rearrange them. I run to the New York Times uh, to do their editorial board and it was interesting. I did not shake hands with anybody. <laughs> and like, just in case. <laughs> um, did my editorial board, got on a plane, flew out here. Uh, this is my first public day from being down. And, and it was interesting, because the editorial board, which they're gonna actually put all of them on TV, they filmed all of them, all of them online, which I think is great. My staff says, how you did? I'm a rough grader. I'm not like Stanford, do not grade on a curve. You know, I'm, not like, I'm sorry, my fellow Cardinals. You know, I got into Stanford because it went 4.0, 1600. 4.0 yards per carry, 1,600 receiving yards. Gotta <laughs> tell the truth, I was a high school All-American football player. Um, and, and, um, but, but I said, I said, Sam, I said, I was a B, I, I, I did a B, but the end they asked me a question that surprised me, and maybe that's where I'll start. Their last question in the New York Times editorial board this morning is, they said, we've, we've asked all the questions, these questions to all the candidates, 
And they said, tell us about a time that you had your heart broken. And this is New York Times at the corner board, and I'm kind of surprised by the question. Because we just talked about everything from uh, the outrageous, shameful challenges of Yemen and our participation that our military planes were refueling Saudi planes to drop American bombs on Yemen, causing one of the worst cholera epidemics, uh, 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 killing tens of thousands of children. No authorization for the use of military force. The extension of executive power is something I've been fighting against as a senator and will end when I'm president of the United States. Uh, Everything from that to women's reproductive rights, I love the conversation we had. And just got busy, like, what would be a litmus test for Supreme Court justices? I said, litmus test, it will damn well be a firewall. You're not going to be one of my, my Supreme Court appointments uh, if, if you are not going to see Roe v. Wade as rightfully settled law of our land. Um, so the, the policy discussions were really important, but this is again where I want to compliment your field of Democratic candidates. God, there are great, we, there's no difference, no movement room between us on reproductive rights. Uh, I joined with a few of those other senators to fight to get a bipartisan condemnation of our Yemen uh, Saudi policy. I could go through so many of these issues. Yes, I am proud to have brought to that debate stage, uh, which we will rise again in January and be on the debate stage. Uh, to bring my lived experience as, as, as a guy that lives in a low-income, black and brown community below the poverty line, where we do not mistake wealth with worth, and to bring up issues that haven't been brought up on debate stages for decades, like the sin of child poverty in this country. Or, or the violence against uh, uh, trans black women uh, that's epidemic in this country. <laughs> the shooting of unarmed African American men, the challenge and the scourge in this nation of how we isolate people who are dealing with dementia or Alzheimer's. All these things are important, but I'm telling you that the differences between us right now, I, I have such respect for our team. The point that I try to make to the New York Times and the point I'm trying to make to you tonight is in order to get big things done in this nation, we will, we've lost so many elections with people with better 15-point policy plans. What we need now, this is a moral moment more than ever. We need the kind of candidates, plural, we need the kind of people, plural, like the civil rights activists, like the suffrage activists, like the LGBTQ activists, who can start to ignite the moral imagination of this country and excite an energy and activism to get more people involved because we cannot make this election about one guy in one office. It's not about what we're against, it's about what we're for. Don't get me wrong, being Donald Trump is essential, but being Donald Trump is the floor, it's not the ceiling. Ignite 
the connections between us, to affirm the fact, the spiritual truth that the lines that divide us are nowhere near as strong as the ties that bind us. It is this cause of our country through wretchedness and bigotry and hate Literally, our founding documents, the geniuses, the imperfect geniuses that found and couldn't escape putting into those documents the bigotries and the racism of the time. Declaration of Independence, Native Americans are called savages. Women are second-class citizens. Blacks are fractions of human beings. But the genius in those documents was not just the design of our Constitution with so many of its incredible strengths that have been replicated from the oldest constitutional democracy, the constitutional democracy on the planet. It was the spirit that the founders understood that if we were going to make this country succeed, we had to have an extraordinary connection to one another. We ended that Declaration of Independence with a Declaration of Interdependence. They literally said if we're going to make it at the end of the Declaration of Independence, we must mutually pledge to each other our lives, our fortunes, and our sacred honor. Now, that is lofty poetry of the 1700s, but I just, as a dude from Jersey, I call that sacred honor, I call that love. I, I believe that patriotism is love of country, and you cannot love your country unless you love your fellow country men and women. And love is not sentimentality. It is not. Love is not, ooh, baby, baby. No. Say love it, Carson. This is the best amen corner I've ever had. <laughs> you know, King talked about that kind of love. He said it was Eros, the Greek separated three types of love. Philia is, is that friendship, the family. Those are all sort of, you know, love, but you love me, I love you. The bonds of, of family, no. He talked about the agape kind of love. That was at the core of our society. And, and so this is the power of our nation. We're not defined by that wretchedness or the hate or the bigotry. Every generation has seen the worst imaginable examples of that. Hell, Every generation of our politics have seen demagoguery, bigotry, race, the highest levels. God, the know-nothing party, eerily using a lot of the same language about immigrants as this president uses. Back then, the, the bigotry was not extended towards black and brown immigrants. It was extended towards Irish and Italian immigrants. Yes. It, it, it's Father Conklin. Some of you might remember that name. The number one radio show in America with its anti-Semitic screeds. There was McCarthyism. There was all of these demagogues always rise. So the, the point is not that we've had that. It's how we responded as a country to those moments where activists, artists of activism, challenge the consciousness of a country to recognize that the mission of this nation is to put more indivisible into this one nation under God, to show people that we have common cause and common destiny, that the evil in our midst is our division against each other. And, and that's what I think is almost comical sometimes. My, my favorite moments of the campaign is when I've had people challenge me because I understand anger is one of the most productive motions if it's challenging, if you're outraged, if you're outworking. You know, if you're worried, if you're working, if you're, your anger makes you an activist, uh, if you go from being agonized to getting organized, 
If you, if you, those channeling that emotion is such a spiritually powerful thing to do. So yeah, get angry, but don't let that angry pervert your soul. I, 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 will, I will tell you this. I, one of my favorite moments early in the campaign, I'm, I'm trotting into Iowa Town Hall, about 500 people there. I'm really psyched. I'm about to jump up on the stage, and big guy, big dude sees me. I'm, I'm big dude. I don't know if I, I told you. Play football. <laughs> Older I get, the better I was. <laughs> and he puts his arm around me and he goes, dude, I want you to punch Donald Trump in the face. <laughs> I look at him sort of surprised and I'm like, dude, that's a felony, man. <laughs> You're not going to beat Donald Trump by being more Trumpy. That's what he wants. <laughs> We're not going to beat him on his turn on his turf. We have seen this cycle of energy that only sucks more oxygen and makes him bigger. Yeah. It, it, we didn't beat Bull Connor in Birmingham. He would have loved it if we came in with trying to bring bigger dogs, bigger fire hoses and weapons. No, it was artists of activism that, that matched his darkness with light, his hate with love, but more importantly, even than that, that turned to all of us. As King said so eloquently, the problem today is not just the vitriolic words and violent actions of the bad people, it's the appalling silence and inaction of the good people. King's letter from the Birmingham jail was not to white racists in the South. It was to well-meaning good folk who were doing nothing in the midst of moral outrage. Yes. Yes. Now, I remind people, we, we just had an election in 16, where in key states like Wisconsin, Donald Trump got less votes than Mitt Romney did. And we shellacked Mitt Romney. I, I, I have to tell you now, this is one of those moments where what gets me more angry and this gets me to the New York Times response, is us. And I will never point a finger at another human being without telling you that I have been ridiculously flawed in trying to evidence the values that I speak about from debate stages, from, excuse me, debate stages and, and town hall stages and in this campaign, but yet that's my calling into this race. And, and so when the Times asked me this question this morning and says heartbreak, I, I felt my heartbreak again. And I'm going to tell everybody here, very pointedly, if America has not broken your heart, you don't love her enough. I, I feel pride and gratitude, but I listen to the words coming out of my mouth, and I'm saying these words, liberty and justice for all, and I know we have not gotten yet. I know. As Brian Stevenson says, we have a nation that treats you better if you're rich and guilty than if you're poor and innocent. We have a nation that says to the world, we want you to to address your human rights issues, but in our own jails and prisons, we do things that other nations call torture, like putting children in solitary confinement. Yeah. Yeah. You want to talk about a, a nation? No. Don't judge them by the size of their buildings. 
or, or, or how many millionaires or billionaires they have? Look, look into their prisons. Yeah, Turkey, they arrest people in the media, literally are charged with fake news. Russia, political opposition, if they're not killing them. Our country, you want to go to our prisons and see the soul of our nation? A nation that literally drives the most vulnerable of its citizens into prisons? Instead of giving people health care for mental illness, our biggest institutions are our jails and prisons where people are not getting the help they need. You want to talk about addiction, the disease of addiction? But for the grace of God, go us? Or the truth is, people in this room, people in my family, struggling with addiction, and yet our, what we do with it is we load people into prisons and jails. You want to talk about debtors' prisons? That's not a thing of the past. There are thousands, tens of thousands of Americans in jails and prisons right now because they can't afford to pay bail. Yep. And you want to talk about race in America? And Michelle Alexander's new Jim Crow? Where there's no difference between blacks and whites for using drugs or dealing drugs, and yet, you're, if you're African American, you're four times more likely to be arrested for those things. And as I'm driving past this wonderful city that has seen some legalized marijuana. <laughs> I'm reminded that we're still in a nation where in 2017 there were more marijuana arrests than all the violent crime arrests. For what reason? <laughs> I'll meet you at the reef down the road. After you. <laughs> well, so the New York Times wanted to talk to me about heartbreak. And the beautiful thing about Newark is it has, it's the city that I came to 20 plus years ago with this arrogance of a Yale law student. <laughs> and I, I, with this swagger, like I'm leaving Yale Law School and I'm gonna go help the people of Newark. <laughs> and, and I tell you, you know, God has a way of driving you to the bathroom floor. <laughs> Because I got there, I got my BA from Stanford, but my PhD on the streets of Newark. Like America, right now, my great city didn't need a savior. We needed each other. We needed humility. We needed folks that didn't mistake wealth with worth. We needed folks that saw each other. And I got there, and this woman named Miss Virginia Jones, she was the, the tenant president of the projects across the street from the place I moved in, and I moved in and I had a rude awakening. I mean, I'd worked everywhere from East Harlem to East Palo Alto, but I, I get to Newark and hear shootings for my first time, moving my stuff in, come back to my car and stuff was stolen out of my car, and, and just had a tough first few days, but I show up on uh, Miss Jones's door and I'm like, dee dee dee, Cory Booker. <laughs> And this elderly tenant leader, this one of the wisest people, one of my life's greatest professors, she's like, who is it? She opens the door, and I'm like, I'm Cory Booker, I'm here to help. And, and, and she gave me this look like, boy, you need some help. And she takes me to the, to the street, and Martin King said, Martin King Boulevard, and she says, if you want to help me, tell me what you see in my neighborhood. And I describe it just like I described to you, crack house, you know, drug dealers, all, I just, just described what I saw. And the more I talked, the more angry at me she looked. And, 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 and she literally finally says to me, you can't help me. And she just walks away. 
And I'm stunned. I run after her. I stop her from behind. I'm like, what are you talking about? And she looks at me angrily. She's five feet in the submission hole, but now I feel like she's looking down at me. And she's like, boy, you need to understand something. The world you see outside of you is a reflection of what you have inside of you. And if you're one of those people who only sees problems and darkness and despair, that's all there's ever going to be. But if you're one of those folks who's stubborn, and every time you open your eyes, you see hope, you see possibility, you see beauty, you see divinity, then you can be one of those people that helps me. She just shook her head and left me there on the streets, looking at my feet, thinking to myself, okay, grasshopper, thus ended the lesson. I, I, you, you want to talk about going to school? You want to talk about going to school? I, young woman over here is holding up a sign that says climate. That's a big challenge. And, and we're not going to be able to deal with big challenges just, just because we bring incredibly smart people together. And I've learned so much over the last 20 years when I first started trying to really grapple with this problem of leader in my city when Bush wouldn't join the Kyoto Accords. And we mayors stepped up in America, and many of us said, Let's, we're going to solve this problem. Yes. And, and the first big challenge I had to take on was something that seemed impossible as well. It was the slumlord of Miss Jones's buildings, brick towers. And she basically said, we will not beat him by making it all about him. It's us. If we can organize us and get everybody in this building a part of our common cause and our common fight, then we will have power, strength, and that seemingly powerful, rich man, we will topple him. And you know what? He went to federal court. Federal court. He went to, excuse me, federal court, and he lost. He went to federal jail. Because we did everything to bring those buildings together and show what our power is, show that the power of the people is always greater than the people in power. Yes. And so, and so when Ms. Jones said to me and Frank Hutchins and all these other tenant leaders, when I was getting you know, good helping them as their young lawyer, learning a lot from these incredible elders in my community, they said to me, you're running for city council. And I said, no, I'm not. I didn't come here to be a politician. I came here to be an activist lawyer. My heroes were Charles Hamilton Houston and, and, and Thurgood Marshall. And I was going to be a grassroots activist. And they're like, no, did you come here to help the people or did you come here to be a lawyer? And if you're going to be here to help the people, you're going to do what people want you to do. <laughs> and next thing you know, a guy who sort of disdained politics was suddenly running for city council. And they, they told me this was an impossible election, that you can't win. And, and literally, the obstacles are too great, but we're gonna show you that the power of the people is greater than the people of power. This machine has been so powerful that the only way city council people have seemed to have left in the recent decades was either death or conviction. And, and it wasn't conviction of principles. <coughs> and so what do we do? We organize. And, and, and we literally went and knocked on thousands and thousands of doors Upset the city. I mean, the youngest person elected upset the machine. Being the youngest person elected, it's why I look at this election right now and I'm like, pundits, what are you guys talking about? And at any point we had taken a poll <laughs> in 1998, none of them would have ever given me a shot in hell of winning that election. And what we Democrats forget, and this is the obsession of the TV uh, of, of pundits right now on TV, 
it, it's like, wait a minute, y'all are talking about the polls in this election and there's never been somebody, and never somebody, who's ever gone on to, presidents from our, from, to, to the presidency, to the White House from our party. It's December now. Who was leading in the polls in December? Yes. Never happened. person on top. <laughs> Jimmy Carter, single digits around now. Considering an underdog long shot wasn't going to make it. Bill Clinton, single digits right now. Some dude who married up. I miss Obama. I miss Obama. I miss Obama and I miss her husband too. Post has this great uh, Twitter feed. I think it's who led, as they call it, using the polls of this day. I just looked at it. I mean, freaking Newt Gingrich and, and was winning. Uh, Giuliani was winning. And, and at this point, in Obama's race, he was like uh, 15, 20 points behind Hillary Clinton. People say he was a long shot, way behind African American voters in South Carolina. And literally, have we learned? No. In fact, in 2004, December 2004, John Kerry, John Edwards were polling at sixth and seventh, four and two percent. One month, the caucuses were in January that, in, in 2004, and one month later, they finished one and two in the caucuses. So we're looking at this and saying, folks don't understand where I come from. <laughs> and what it's taken to win, the power of the people. This is why we take pleasure in the fact that the Des Moines Register and, 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 and Iowa Star and local media says me and one other candidate are the two best organizing teams on the ground in Iowa. This is why I take pleasure that the candidate in this field leading all other candidates endorsements and local leaders in Iowa and New Hampshire is my campaign endorsed by the people in the caucus room. We are going to win in Iowa the way that everybody has in the past. Not by leading in the polls going in, but because of the message and because of the organizing and because all of those candidates who went on to the White House, they spoke not to a party. This is not a moment. I'm telling you, please listen to me. I want to I wanna beat Donald Trump, beat Mitch McConnell. I'll go through all the Republicans. Heck, I told somebody the other day, for all the people who connected to Colorado, one of the side goals I have is to make the United States Senate. Right now, there's Cory Gardner, Cory Booker. I want to make the United States Senate Cory-less in 2020. One into a wonderful career in the private sector, the other to the White House. You can figure out who's it. Um, but, but this is not a moment where we as Democrats should put as our highest aspiration to be Republicans. Our highest aspiration has got to be to unite Americans. And if we campaign in a way, if we campaign in a way that continues the energies of division, divisiveness, demeaning and degrading people just because of who they voted for, the 60 million people who voted for Donald Trump are not our enemy. There are family members, some of y'all, admit it. <laughs> yes! 
Okay? Definitely. Yes. How do we do it? Then we, then we have to understand that the next, the energy that, that cancels out, that beats the energy of Donald Trump right now is the opposite of his energy. Yeah. If, if you all want to know about fighting, damn. I, I, there's an Oscar-nominated movie about me called Street Fight. And hold on, you're applauding, but I have to confess this as a full disclosure. It lost in the Oscars to a movie called March of the Damn Penguins. <laughs> they are not cute. Flightless rodents. All my fellow vegans in the audience now are like, can you just call them flightless rodents? We love rodents, they're God's creatures too. <laughs> Yes, my family, fellow animal lovers, I love penguins. Yes. But that whole 87 minutes, if you have a chance, you can Google it, watch it on YouTube tonight. I had death threats. I had a federal judge call me up to warn me about my life. Tires on my car slashed, my phones were tapped. You want to talk about dirty tactics. You want to talk about outrageous rhetoric. You want to talk about a campaign against the odds. That's it but we did not beat him. We did not beat the machine in Newark by becoming the machine in Newark. We beat, darkness cannot drive out darkness, only light can do that. Hate cannot drive out hate, only love can do that. But for those of you who think that love is anemic and love is sentimentality, it is a fearsome force. This election is going to be won because of how we fight. We must fight like, like Ella Baker, we must fight. Yes. Like Harvey Milk, we must fight like Susan B. Anthony. We must fight in this election. But how we fight is what is critical. How we show strength is so critical. And that's the message. And there will be no more ferocious street fighter in this race than me. Now, let me make my, I'm going to get to this story and, and end this eventually, but New York Times, again, as I meander towards the most unusual presidential stump speech you've ever heard. But this is the call of this moment. It is not about me, it's about we. It is about what you do in a moral moment. It, it, you will not be called in our day and age to do freedom rides, to storm beaches in Normandy, to die and give your life in a voting cause like Goodman, Cheney, and Schwarner who died together doing voter registration in Mississippi. That's not what we're called to in this moment, that level of sacrifice. But what we do matters. And when we fail to do something we fail in the moments we are given in every day to do things that resonate in time and space. And I know that. I'm here because of that. 50 years ago, my parents were trying to move to New Jersey, I, that mecca. I know you've heard of it. <laughs> and, and, and literally, they were turned away from places that had great public schools because most of them were in white neighborhoods. And it was a group of people that met in the living room that showed the power of their faith by saying we will welcome the stranger, showed the power of their patriotism by saying we will love our fellow American, and they said you, we will stand for you, and they set up a sting operation, I call it a conspiracy of love, where, where they would send my parents to look at a home, and they would be told it was sold, 
and, and they would leave, and a volunteer white couple would come right after them, find out it was still for sale, and the house I grew up in, my parents were told it was sold, the white couple found out it was still for sale, they put a bid on the house, the white couple did, the bid was accepted, papers were drawn on the day of the closing, the white couple didn't show up, my father did in a volunteer lawyer. And, and, and so, they walk into the real estate agent's office, should be the end of the story, but it's not. The real estate agent sees he's been caught, stands up, doesn't give up, doesn't capitulate. He punches my dad's lawyer in the face. And he sticks a dog on my dad. Literally, this is the story I heard while I was growing up. And, and by the way, every time my dad would tell this story, the dog would get bigger. <laughs> Why did I go from Yale Law School to Newark, New Jersey to be a tenants' rights lawyer? Because a generation before, people were lawyers and volunteers for my housing rights. Yeah. Everybody here drinks deeply from wells of freedom and liberty and opportunity that you did not dig. Yes. of the heartbreak, it's about you. It's about me, it's about we. Because what you do matters. If you don't believe me, let me get to the end of this, this, this by saying this. I got, I got to the Senate, I don't know if you all know about us senators, but I got to the Senate and I decided to do what other senators do that have a high sense of self-regard. I decided to write a book. You laugh, but if your name is Booker, there's a lot of expectations. <laughs> And, and so I decided to go back and find those people from 50 years ago that literally helped my family move in. I, and I'm ashamed to tell you that I never had said thank you. And so I find them. This group of folks that met in the living room, the leader of that group, she is now 93 years old and still the leader of that group. She leads the Fair Housing Council in Northern New Jersey, and, and, and she doesn't represent black families anymore. Lots of black folks up in Bergen County, New Jersey. Now, she represents same-sex couples, Muslim families, sick families, Americans with disabilities, because to her, love has no color. It's one love, one justice, one nation. And she confirmed a lot of facts, but she sent me to the lawyer. The guy that organized the sting operation came up with the idea, I said to him, let me have all the information. I need this for the chapter of my book. And then he ended by telling me something that shook me, that points to us, to you, to me. He said to me, the moment I made that decision to do this all was a time when I was busy. I was starting a business. I was barely making ends meet. I was struggling to make it at the start of my career. But the moment I made that decision was when I was sitting on my couch watching TV on March 7th, 1965. And I didn't recognize that date in history, but he was watching TV and it, this was, some of you might remember these, this Byzantine era of America where we had only three channels. <laughs> and to change them, you had to get up. <laughs> so most of America was watching what he was watching. And some of you all in this room with gray hair or no hair like me will be able to tell you the end of this movie title. He was watching a movie that most of America was watching called Judgment at Nuremberg. 
And on this historic day, March 7th, 1965, as he's watching this movie with millions of other Americans, something happens that shocks this country. They break away from an ongoing movie to show breaking news and show a bridge in Alabama called the Edmund Pettus Bridge. And a man on a couch, a white man on a couch, a thousand miles away, watches as these marchers who started in Selma get stopped on a bridge on the way to Montgomery and get tear gassed and beaten viciously with billy clubs, trampled with horses. And what does he do? He doesn't just sit there in a moral moment. He doesn't just allow his inability to do everything to undermine his determination to do something. He gets up off the couch and enters the greatest of all American traditions, which is saying, I love my country, and I love my fellow countrymen and women. Injustice anywhere is a threat to justice everywhere. And I may not be able to afford a plane ticket to Alabama or even close my business one day, but I am going to do the best I can with what I have where I am. And he thinks to himself, I can afford one hour of pro bono work a week, and he decides, he decides that, yeah, I, 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 I'm going to call around. And he finds this woman, young then, now 93 years old, is like, hallelujah, thank you, Jesus, I need some help. And the two of them start working on a scheme, and he says, 65 turns to 67 to get other people involved, or the lawyer, 69 comes around, and he gets this case file from the family coming up from the South, distressed and discouraged because they can't find a place for their family and, and neighbors with great public schools. And he says, we help that family. And he goes, you know the name on those case files? And I'm like, no. He goes, what was the name? I go, what were the names on the case file? He goes, two names, Carrie and Carolyn Booker, your parents. Yeah. I, I'm here right now. Yeah. I'm a United States yeah. senator, just the fourth black person ever popularly elected to that office. Yes. Wow. Yeah. Because a white guy on a couch in New Jersey years before I was even born stood up for this country. Yes. yes. Running for the highest office in the land to potentially be the first descendant of slaves to move into the White House built by slaves. Yeah. Yeah. I, all because years before I was born, just one American in a moral moment stood up stood up. And so the heartbreak, God, that I feel every day, the ache in my soul that is shared by people in this room is to live in a nation with unparalleled possibilities where we are interwoven in this network where we have proven time and time again as James Baldwin wrote in The Fire Next Time that our history is a perpetual testimony to the achievement of the impossible and now we stand on a precipice we stand at a crossroads where the question is what will our story be in this next century will it be one of decline will we diminish Will we be divided? Or will we stand up and join arms, call to the consciousness of our country, or will we miss the opportunities to address the heartbreak that right now in America there's someone isolated and alone, struggling with mental illness or addiction, 
who served our nation abroad in the country that sings about the home of the brave, but our bravest, our veterans, are disproportionately homeless. Or the teacher tonight who doesn't know how they're going to pay their student loans and their rent, but will go to school tomorrow and reach in their pockets to pay for children that come to school out of poverty and need food or sanitary napkins, and they will make that gift as they do every day, but have a country that would rather give tax breaks to some working for hedge funds, but not for teachers who work for the future of our country every day. Military rights reports about what will happen with climate change if we continue to deny and do nothing, not 50 years from now, when I'm the same age as this president. God bless America. We don't have time. We don't. This is our moral moment, America. When the strongest nation on the planet Earth says to our children, we can't protect you, so we're going to send you to school and teach you how to hide? Where we literally have more shelter-in-place drills in America than all than fire drills in our country? Where Americans now do everything right. They live on my block. They work longer hours than my parents do. And yet they don't have the resources to raise their children. They need food stamps in my bodega to buy food. Is that justice? One across the street from me is an incredible drug treatment center called Integrity House. And I walk across and occasionally I've sat with some of the fellas. I'll bring food. They get mad at me because it's vegan. <laughs> And listen to the stories of the people there who've had their addiction treated with incarceration again and again and again. The, the financial insanity of spending millions of dollars on somebody as opposed to giving them an honorable, dignified pathway to treatment. When we literally tell our senior citizens in America, this is true, and we all should know it, retire with dignity? No, you're ill or declining, you need to qualify for Medicaid, for the help of our society, you must burn through your life savings and go into poverty just to qualify for Medicaid. Where in my community, like communities all across America, they are rationing their prescription drugs, they're like their, their insulin because they can't afford it. Where in my community, like communities all across the country, they turn on the tap to drink water and don't know if it will be clean. This is a moral moment in America. We're on the precipice. We're on the crossroads. This now calls for us to be like generations before when they tried to beat us down at Stonewall, when they tried to beat us back in Selma, when they tried to obliterate us in Pearl Harbor. In all of those moments, we reached out to each other and said, together we will rise. And so I leave you with this note, finally. <laughs> My answer to the New York Times. Thank you. The answer to the New York Times. My heart breaks.
I moved into Brick Towers with Miss Jones. It was the toughest place physically I've ever lived. Living in high-rise projects, elevators wouldn't work, mice, rodents, literally roaches all over the place. It was tough. And heat and hot water that wouldn't work. I learned how to shower with a camp bag, not by camping, but hanging bags and filling it with boiling water and taking showers that way. I had folks, the women who looked after me in the building, who would come in and teach me how to heat my apartment with my oven. Boy, you gotta put a pot on top. Don't forget, you need that humidity in your apartment. You don't want to dry out. People looked out for each other. Yeah. It was, to this day, I've lived a lot of places, the greatest place I've ever lived. Because the community that was there, together in that fight against slumlords. In the lobby of the building was this group of kids I watched them grow up. By the time 2006 rolled around, they were now in high school, and they were great. But one night I walk in, and I, I smell marijuana, and you know, it was like reminding me of being at Stanford. <laughs> but black kids in inner cities don't have the same margin for error as college kids experimenting with drugs. And so I brought, immediately said, fellas, let's go out, let's, let's hang out together, and and uh, I made the mistake of first bribing them to come out with me. That let's go any movie you want to, I'll take you to it. Do not let teenagers <laughs> in the mid aughts <laughs> um, decide movies because next thing you know, I thought it was a home improvement movie. It was Saw Two. <laughs> I, I I brought them with other friends of mine, connected them, and I started asking what their dreams were, and they were humble dreams and aspirations, and I made commitments to them that I would follow through and you know, set up mentors for each one, but then I got busy running for office. I was running for mayor, it was 2006. And I, I told them, you know, I'll get to that stuff, but guys, I'm so busy right now, and I would still come home at night, and they would still be in that lobby, and they were amazing to me. They would celebrate me coming home every time I'd come home. They would cheer me. They would tell me they were going to vote for me. They were too young. <laughs> <laughs> the leader of that crew was my father. He, he was just like my dad. He, he was born to a single mom, born in poverty, born in a segregated nation. My dad, it was du jure. In America still, it is overwhelmingly still de facto. My mom, my dad, and, and him both were raised by their grandmother for a bit. His grandmother was raising him a few floors below me in the projects. <clears throat> and, and he could light me up when I would come home. Well, I won that election, and amazingly, uh, he was immediately thrown into the turmoils of being a new mayor in a city that was facing crisis. And, and I had death threats again on me, and they wrapped police officers around me and stationed them in the projects. I don't care who you are in this room, you do not hang out. You do not hang out, thank you. You do not hang out in places where cops are hanging out, because I never saw the kids. And, but yeah, I was on this mission. I had reached my brass ring, the highest office I was dreaming of changing the whole city. I didn't see my kids, but uh, hey, I was going to change things for all kids, and shootings were going on in the city, and they were on the rise when I became mayor. In fact, I think the night before I became mayor, two homicides, and I started showing up everywhere. A month into my term, I come to a shooting right down the street from uh, Brick Towers, and I, I, I'm, I'm, I'm 
barely even acknowledged the body on the ground and the other one being loaded in the ambulance. I was ministering to the living and I talked to the city. The people gathered there on the street telling them what we would do together. And amazingly, we, I felt their energy and I felt our city lurching forward to make a difference. And I felt a sense of pride knowing where we were going, knowing what our destiny was. And I went home that night to catch two hours of sleep before getting back to my noble mission. And I pulled out my Blackberry to read the reports. And then I see the person that was killed. I see his name. It was Hassan Washington, kid from my lobby. The Times asked me when my heartbreak was. I broke open wide. I went to his funeral and I, I said it reminded me of a bowel of a ship. We were all there, piled it on top of each other, chained together in grief, moaning and groaning. And I felt such shame. I felt it on my chest. I couldn't breathe. I, I ran out of the funeral. I didn't even stay for the remarks. And I, I got to the new mayor's office, this palatial office, and I sat down in my seat. And I cried for the first time in the mayor's office. And all I could think about was, God, I failed my father. I failed to pay it forward. All I could think about was here, all of us, we packed into a funeral. We were all there for his death. But where were we for, he, for his life? Look, we in this room, crowded here, right now, we're here in a noble tradition. This isn't sport. Democracy is not a spectator sport. We're gathered here together not for joy or to defeat some enemy. We're gathered here for each other. I've missed opportunities in my life. I've stumbled. I've failed. I've been on death and floor face down. <laughs> that doesn't define me. You know what my tenant president said to me? whose own son was murdered. Ms. Virginia Jones, that wise woman, she said to me, hope is the active conviction that despair will never have the last word. It sounds cheesy. It sounds weak to run my whole campaign, not just on the policies that populate my website. I'm in this race because of us because of the substance of life, because of what has helped us to overcome the wretchedness and the hate of the past. Tonight I'm standing here 3,000 miles away from my home and I'm feeling the fellowship in this room and I thank you here tonight. together. We've all made mistakes. We're all imperfect. We're all a little broken. <laughs> We're all hurting. But those things don't define us. It's always what we do next. And I'm telling you what's coming. I promise you, I feel it in my gut. I know what's coming for our country. Our best days are not behind us. They are ahead. I know. 
There are generations not yet born. There are generations not yet born that will benefit from the energy and the light and the decisions we make today. And so I'm going to take you to a happy ending of scripture. And I'm one of these folks that says, before you tell me about your religion, first show it to me in how you treat other people. <laughs> but I want to end with a simple line of scripture that's written in a place that's sacred ground in America where king was slain. It's not a place for us to be sad. They wanted to put this there as scripture to challenge us. And it sums up what I think the urgency of the moment is. Because this nation's documents, as great as they are, it is the spirit that has animated them that has caused slaves, abolitionists, women who were denied equal citizenship rights, immigrants who were denied equal humanity. It is the spirit of this nation that has made those documents live and made this country what it is. And this is the moment that I want to end with, which is that moment of tragedy where King was killed. If you go there right now, they put lines of scripture that have nothing to do with religion, but everything to do with our civic gospel. And they're calling to us now. It's challenging us now. The words written there where King was slain are the words from Joseph's brothers who were written, who were uttered, excuse me, Joseph's brothers who uttered these words before they grabbed Joseph to kill him with his coat of many colors to throw him into a pit to die, but he did not perish in the pit. He rose on up. And so I tell you this. It says this where King was slain, these words of Joseph's brothers. Behold, here cometh the dreamer. Let us slay him and see what becomes of the dream. It's our generation's turn to decide what becomes of the dream. We will dream a defiant dream. We will dream America anew again. We will not let our dream be divided, diluted, diminished. It is time that we dream America anew. Dream with me. Stand with me. Fight with me. Let us love as a people. And if we do that, we will not perish in the pit. We will rise on up and reclaim our glory and lead this nation to yet again be a light unto all nations. Thank you, everybody. Thank you. God bless you. Watching wait to kick the dough in Cause I know I got them dope pins And the dope ends so my enemies got no friends Yeah, it don't end I wake up in the morning Yawning Cops watching wait to kick the dough in Cause I know I got them dope pins And the dope ends so my enemies got no friends Yeah, it don't end uh, You come to my hood and tell me how to live I think I'm good That's not how it is Not how it works So I was at work on my craft Like I'm leaving the earth Like trees in the earth Getting deep in the dirt Not for Reason I search that's for the birds like the season of turps. You see, yeah. at first, you're the only thing I need on this earth, then. Well, you're the only reason I hurt. At first, you're the only thing I need on this earth, then. Well, only reason I hurt, maybe, baby, that's just how I twist it. But I know you got a hit list of misters who diss it, so now I can't have your big lips. Just wanna love you for real though, but when you come to work, you wear your still toes, so you can't feel no access to your seal, so and so. I gotta pay the bill though, and get fed, barely have the meal slow. Girl, yeah, 
Love is all I'm really here for Wake up in the morning, yawning Cops watching, wake to kick the dope in Cause I know I got them dope pins And it don't end so my enemies got no friends Yeah, it don't end I wake up in the morning, yawning Cops watching, wake to kick the dope in Cause I know I got them dope pins And it don't end so my enemies got no friends Yeah, it don't end I always been a thinker, so you telling me we gon' sink Uh, don't compute in my brain, I don't just shoot I'm careful of my aim and I'll be shooting to you Care for the same, on the same tree like some pairs I'm just saying, we all have prayers for the same Already there is the plan, cop you a ticket Have you a visit to where bliss is First, you're the only thing I need on this earth then But you're the only reason I hurt At first, you're the only thing I need on this earth then But you're the only reason I hurt Ralph Rain Yeah, 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 it's Ralph Rain